Hello? 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 Hi! Hi! Hello, my friends. Welcome to Too Much Information with Sean Arnold. I remain Sean Arnold. Very excited to talk with my guest today. Uh, An extraordinary young lady I've known for a long time. Um, She is a clinical psychologist. She writes articles and books. She speaks everywhere, including, I know, because I've seen it and we talked about it, done a TED Talk, which is pretty awesome. Uh, She contributes on lots of different media platforms, um, including CNN and CNNI. Um, CNNI, because she's a Spanish speaker, because her parents were immigrants. I'd like to talk a little about that. I'm going to have to confirm where she's from here in a second, or her parents or her family's from. I think I remember, but I'm not sure. But welcome to the show, the ubiquitous and extremely intelligent and fun to talk to, Dr. Paula Bloom. Hello. <laughs> hey, Sean. Good to talk to you. How are yeah, you? my parents are from Chile. Chile. Uh, my parents were were uh, they're immigrants from Chile. I'm the first one in the U.S. born in the born in the U.S. My family. So yeah, um, good to see you. Good. Um, good to see you as well. Um, so. Have you how did you have you been back to Chile a bunch or or not at all or Yeah. So I used to I used to spend all of my summers there um when I was a kid. I grew up in Florida actually. Um but I spent all of most of my summers which would have been winter to Chile and the last time I was in Chile was in um November 2018 actually my grandmother passed away mm. and I was there actually. Um we she, it was amazing we were able she was 99. Wow. And people from all all over the world were able to get there in time um, to be with her. It was really powerful, actually. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, I think my wife's grandmother's 98th birthday is this year. That's that's an extraordinary wealth of of years. Yeah, it, I mean, yes, she lived a long life. As someone that almost checked out a couple of years ago <laughs> at 44 or 40, what, 44, 40, uh, 43. Um, uh, 99 seemed like, seems like a, like an almost Im, in, unreachable number. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're still here. Uh, you got a lot of work to do here, Sean. We need you here. I, I hope, um, that's the plan. I do feel like I'm probably doing more work, um, or at least trying to in the wake of all that. That's probably an interesting quick pivot, um, in your world. Um, I talk a lot for people that listen to this, I talk a lot about mental health on here. Um, because I had a mental health journey in truly two different ways. Um, one was the death of my father and then obviously being very sick. Um, interestingly enough, the time I spent in counseling and therapy post my father's death really informed my ability to deal with, being really sick Mm -hmm. um and i felt like if i hadn't had those tools i would have been in big trouble right um but you know i just feel like it's a very underserved part of your health in the world because i think and i think a lot of it is driven by a a very i shouldn't say silly because i feel like it's reductive but sort of silly reasons like pride or a sense of weakness, you know, not really driven by anything other than people are unfamiliar or uncomfortable or don't believe in it or whatever it is. Yeah. 
And, yeah. And I've even have a full episode I did on here talking specifically about my father's death and sort of going through the process um, with a professional as opposed yeah. to try to do it on your own. But um, anyhow, um, what I was getting at was I would I would assume that in your work, um, you're clearly exposed to this stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah. You want me to tell you what it's been like being a shrink um, <laughs> <laughs> during this time? It's been really interesting, Sean. It's actually interesting we you started talking about um, about uh, grief because that's exactly I think what's been happening for people, um, and you know, just a lot of losses. Um, and people are, you know, people get very judgmental of themselves, like, oh, you know, there's people who have it worse, right? So uh, who am I? I mean, I shouldn't be so upset about the fact that my vacation was canceled or, God, I mean, I, I'm still able to eat. Look how lucky I am. Well, you know, you can feel a lot of things at the same time, right? Sure. You can feel, and this, a lot of this has been grief, a lot of losses. I mean, I, I have a kid who's a senior in high school. And think about all of the things that come with being a senior in high school, right? Um, all the rituals, rites of passages, you know, all the all those kinds of events. Um, and it's been it's just been very very interesting. So you know, I've been working. So let me tell you a little bit about. I know you know you know what I do, but let me talk a little bit about what I do sure. and give some context. Um, so I'm you know a clinical psychologist, and my clinical work these days. Um, I work in a healthcare organization where I'm a psychologist embedded with a team of primary care doctors. So I am very much in the in the mix, you know, of kind of mind body wellness. People coming in to see their primary care doctors, having issues like depression or anxiety or that kind of thing. Well, we have been making a lot of shifts with COVID because we want to keep healthy people out of the clinics. And so I've been working completely remote now. All of my work has been telehealth through phone or video. And it's been very interesting because um, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that have been so painful and awful and, and so much suffering with this pandemic. And there's been some incredibly, in my perspective, positive things too, which is the sense of creativity and rethinking things. Rethinking how we provide care, rethinking what people need and really don't need. And, you know, a lot of what I've been doing is people who are either dealing with having COVID and are anxious about it, or people who are just anxious in general about having it, people who are, you know, one of the main things that I'm dealing with is people who are trying to balance it all. And you know me, hey, Sean, you know me. I, I have no problem being interrupted. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I interrupt, so, you know, feel free. Um, but, you know, it's been a very interesting experience what people are living and a lot of what I'm seeing and, and talking to happen to be people who are able to work from home and are homeschooling children and dealing with all of that, you know, and gosh, I'm no, I was going to say, I do think it's interesting. So um, my, I, my last endocrinologist appointment was um, telehealth. And it's it, and it's sort of an interesting smashing of worlds because, as you know, I work in technology, right? I work in IT. So 
it, particularly around infrastructure. So for most of our clients, you know, that's one of the big things for the for years now. We've been saying like, hey, let's get your remote access posture together, right? Oh, and and yeah. people are like, why? We've got our this beautiful office oh, we've bought. It's and a all game that. changer. And it is a game changer. My organization's been doing this for years and it's been amazing. We've been so nimble because of it. Everybody had remote access. Everybody had, you know, our organization had given all the docs um, iPhones where you could do video visits and people have laptops and we've been moving in this direction anyway. So it's been interesting to watch colleagues who have no exposure to technology. <laughs> They're kind of like, ah, you know. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because, you know, that appointment went really well. And of course, the tech just spans in all directions. So for me, like obviously for those of you who don't know, endocrinologists deal with um you know, your endocrine system, which in my case is pancreas, right? They deal with diabetics. I'm diabetic. Um, uh, and I have a sensor that I wear and all of that data, that my blood sugar information is captured via this sensor and then they can just pull it up, right? So while I can't get a blood test and stuff like that, you know, and get like a CBC or a blood panel, they can see my numbers, you know, and, and they can do an evaluation analysis. Um, it's wild. I mean, my girl, you know, I shouldn't, that's probably, again, reductive. The, the woman that is, that I see, um, she was at her house you know, she was, yeah. you know, it, it was a very, it was interesting. I think it's, it does not strange to me because again, I work in a world where that's a technology we focus on, right. but right. for a lot of people, it's very bizarre, but she loved it. You know, she goes, if you'd have said before this, before we were forced to do it, I would say this will never work. Well, I, what I'm fascinated by is that kind of this removing of this weird power kind of thing where instead of you're walking into the doctor's space, you know, the patient's coming into my office, we're meeting halfway with this technology, right? Um, and I think that that's really powerful. And I think it's beyond just the physical, we're meeting, you know, neither one of us is in the other person's space, but we're kind of in each other's spaces together. Um, it's been really profound. It's I'll been really, really interesting. I'll tell you another thing, though, that is funny that I said to her and to Lauren, and I, she didn't think about it. But we obviously had scheduled the the web meeting or the video chat or whatever you want to call it prior to the appointment. And guess what happened? Well, our appointment what? was at 2. At 2.01, she came into the meeting. We did our 30 minutes, and we were out. And so I told her, I said, uh, well, here's what you're going to find too. And I know it's not that people are jacking around, but everybody's dealt with that situation where you go to the doctor for a two o'clock appointment, you get there at one forty-five, you sit around till two twenty, someone comes and grabs you, you go back and do prep till two thirty-five, you see the doctor at two fifty, right? And you're out. Well, you can't do that when you people are meeting remotely. You have to stick to the clock. And well, it's it's a lot. It's interesting. One of the biggest things I miss about working in the office are my colleagues because, but that's also part of why you run late, right? Because somebody grabs you in the hallway, the nurse grabs you, the, the your colleague consults with you, you know, things are not. Sure. And so it's an interesting, you have to be so... And, and this is what's been for me very difficult for my personality because I work in healthcare because I love being part of a team and I love being available. My job is to be available all day long as a consultant to the primary care doctors. And so it's really, really difficult. You have to be so intentional to, to chit chat. There is no chit chat. It all feels very mm -hmm. intentional, scheduled, you know. Um, but there's a benefit, which is a sense of uh, being on time and 
But um, yeah, no, no, it's been a very interesting thing. I was going to tell you, Sean, something I heard that I thought was really powerful. Um, and this this would apply to the people who are currently working from home. And I know a lot of people aren't working, or aren't don't have the ability to work from home, or aren't are no longer employed. But listen to this that I heard the other day, Sean. It really made a difference for me. Um, the the quote that I heard was. You know, we are not working from home. We are at home during a crisis attempting to work because mm. a lot of people are struggling to focus and concentrate and deal with, you know, multitasking if you have kids in the house or you have a partner in the house or whatever. And we need to just take a step back and reset and say, this is like major what we're living right now. And we cannot use the same standards that we're accustomed to using for what productivity looks like um, or those sure. kinds of things. You know, we are humans. So I feel like I have to put a plug in for this idea of softening a little bit the expectations, you know. Or also an even more probably stressful and less pliable scenario is if you're at home and can't go anywhere and you're not working because you don't have a job. Or you've That's, been, uh, absolutely. <laughs> or you've been furloughed or something of that nature, right? Where yeah, now yeah. not only are you isolated physically from the rest of the world, but you ain't got nothing to do. That's right. That's right. It's interesting. And it's interesting because if you go look on social media and, you know, I have actually really, I swear to God, like I have really come to appreciate all the memes and all the creativity and fun stuff. Um, but you can also end up comparing yourself to what other people are doing. You know, there's this expression, if you compare, you despair. And social media already does that, right? Where you're already, people curate who they are. They put it out there. We know we're curating, but we assume people are presenting the real truth of their lives, you know. Um, so it's been interesting, though. What have you, what has, what has been helpful for you, Sean? I know that, I mean, having known you all these years, I know that you have, you have changed tremendously in these past few years. Sure. You've been transformed. You're still you, which is what I love. But um, how have you been, because, you know, you, I remember when you lost your dad. I mean, mm. you and I have been friends for a long time. And I remember that was transformative. Yeah. Um, how have you been dealing with things lately? So a couple things here. This is funny. You ask. First of all, my wife's joke that she makes now is, so about the third day that we were both fully working from home, right? We were fully remote. Um, it was, uh, I think, a Tuesday because she, I think, ultimately had gotten sent home on a Friday or a Thursday was her last day at work. So we're three working days later and I'm up here. And again, my job is also very time. So the way I work is, is whenever I'm working, I'm a lot like you. I have to allocate time to customers, right, for my employer. So I'm tracking time for billing reasons and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm my day is stacked, right? Like I have to make sure that my, I'm working on stuff that's relevant to what we're getting paid to do, right? Um, I, so I'm, I'm doing the same, it, my workday really didn't change. Right. Um, I'm just here instead of sitting in office, I'm on the phone all day. I hear about two 30 in the afternoon, just, just commotion downstairs, right. Rattling of things, whatever. And I go down, Holly is just like really pacing the room, right? Like she's going absolutely bonkers. It's been three days. And I said, you're going nuts, aren't you? And she goes, I am. And she looks at me and she goes, and you've been training for this your entire life. <laughs> so because I've always been a bit of a homebody, I like being at home. I've told people jokingly, if I've got a hot internet connection, I'm generally golden, right? Like I can, I, I can communicate with people this way. Um, I can watch TV. I can consume things I like to consume, documentaries, movies, television. I can, I play video games. I can do that. So to a degree, 
I'm a little more prepared just personally because I like being at home. Um, the, the second thing, though, I think, which is informed by what's happened to me before, um, is I'm looking at this as an opportunity to have time to to curate's a great word, to curate things that I want to curate um, and not feel like I'm being pulled to other things. Like I need to go out and do this. I need to, I need to run out and do that. So this podcast I've obviously re rejuvenated since I was sick. Um, I started playing my guitar a bunch again. I've now started mm -hmm. posting some that. songs online and stuff, you know, like more just for friends that have asked for things that are driven by, I like I the I think the first one I did was because like Bill Withers passed away and I was I'm a mm -hmm. huge Bill Withers fan I was compelled to just record a song of his because I'm a, I, you know I've I've listened to his work forever, so I've first of all I've just said okay well let's look at this as an opportunity right let's look at this as an opportunity to have time to do things that maybe before we just kicked kicked to the side that are important as personal fulfilling like I it's not like this podcast is a job I'm not making any money I do this because I enjoy it I like it I think it's important to codify and capture conversation. That's the reason this podcast exists. Um, but also the, so the interesting thing too about social media, which I did in the wake of my illness, which has really been helpful to me now is I, we've talked about this before. I used to be the sport arguer, right? Like I used to argue for sport, right? Like I would get onto Facebook, I would have arguments about politics or world events or current events or sports or anything I could just for fun, right? Because I'd like to argue. And um, I realized that A, I wasn't getting anything. I wasn't getting from that what I thought I was getting from it. It actually was causing me harm, not giving me a pos any sort of positive. Um, and I wasn't impacting anyone. And I think deep down at the end of the day, I hope I'm impactful in people's lives in some way. Um, and so I just dejected all that crap. Like if you were social, we're you, we're friends on social media. Do mm -hmm. you see me doing that anymore? Every now and uh, then, something will get under my skin, right? Every now and then, and I just I can't help myself. But right. it's rare. Like I, I just I've dumped all that. Well, it's interesting because yeah, it's always a balance, right? Of wanting to, you know, the question I ask myself sometimes when I'm going and like is if I find myself trying to persuade someone to think a certain way, taking a step back and saying, why does it matter if they agree with me? What's going to happen with that? You know, I know that, you know, I'm going on, it'll be 20 years of marriage at the end of this year. Holy crap. Congratulations. Time. <laughs> and, um, you know, the question of, is it what, you know, do you want to be uh, happy or right? <laughs> and there are just many times those things are mutually exclusive. Sometimes they're not. But it's it's interesting, this idea of persuading and persuading and I think one of the things that people confuse is um, that somehow they assume that if they detach from arguments, that means they don't care about the subject. And that's not true at all. Not at all. You know, we can be detached in a kind of spiritual Zen way and still care deeply. Um, I just think that sometimes I know... For me, people think that they have to keep, oh, if I if I stop arguing, if I stop trying to persuade, that means I'm I feel hopeless that things can change. That's not true either. You know, that's completely untrue. Where somebody can change, but you're not gonna necessarily be the one to do it for them. You can't. And so so many inner it's very interesting because like with politics, you know I have some strong views. 
And, um, you know, I, I live, let's just say I live in the blueberry and the tomato soup here in Georgia, right? <laughs> Same. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I have pretty much completely stopped having any political conversation with people who literally are speaking a different language. I recently heard somebody say, and I, again, this is from somebody much smarter than me, and I don't—I know it's like a famous thing, but some version of this, it's easier to fool people than to convince people they've been fooled. Um, <laughs> For sure. That's great. I've never heard right? that. That's true. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where I – it's definitely not me. It's somebody – somebody quoted it. But it's like – why am I going to engage in those conversations? I'm not. Now, I have to say, I don't engage on that. Let's be honest. So I don't engage in any of that in my own social media. But once in a while, like somebody I don't know very well that I'm friendly with, I may go off on somebody on there. <laughs> so somebody I don't have to interact with. But generally, generally, I just, I'm not enjoying those things. And it's funny because I remember when you and I had that conversation the first time I saw you, when I had come over to your house when you were back home and um, it was one of the parties that that um, your wife threw that I go to the, I, it was a an annual party that we that she throws um, for women her women friends and I, I remember talking to you and it was like oh my god you are you have decided that this that was such a core part of who you are and gave you so much pleasure and enjoyment you realize that it was toxic it's intoxicating but it's toxic for yeah. you right and so and and that's the thing is that it's so our body and our mind is so connected that now you know for sure you can't afford you know it's a luxury righteous indignation sean you feel that in your body. Like that's a luxury that you don't you can't afford anymore given kind of how yeah. how much you have to preserve your body. So, no, it's been a very interesting time, Sean. I feel like um I know for me I sometimes the other day I <laughs> the other day I was talking to this group of um post uh, doctoral fellows. So those are psychologists in training. They finished their doctoral degree, they finished their internship, and now they're in their last thing under supervision and I did a little course for them. And I started the <laughs> I started the talk by asking them or psychologists, what's the best advice you've been giving that you haven't been following? <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> And for me, <laughs> you know, the, the current book that I'm working on has to do with my hypocrisy. It's 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 <laughs> it's the story of a shrink who finally follows her own advice. That's the book I'm working on right now. But um, <laughs> that's awesome. But this idea, so so I'll ask you that question, Sean, because I know sometimes people go to you and what what advice have you been giving that you haven't been following lately? Um, oh, that I haven't been following. Um, oh, that's a great that's a great question. Here's what's funny. Because you're good at giving advice. A lot of us are. <laughs> yeah. Here's what's funny. I think that I, I, I'm having a hard time putting my finger on something that I could have put my finger on a long time ago because I think I am trying super hard to, to live the things that I say right now. Yeah, and I'm having a hard good. time thinking about it. I want to jump back for one second because one thing I wanted to mention to you, a couple things. First of all, Mark Twain said it's easier to fool someone than to be fooled. Oh, okay, okay. I gave um, it somebody. So, so secondly, <laughs> um, here's the other thing that you would leap all over right? As a mental health professional, right? If I told you about the, the, the arguments <laughs> thing, and this is what I figured out. And this is another thing that told me why I needed to stop doing it. Because to your point, I think before I thought in my mind, I was desperate to change people's minds. I was desperate to have them see things the way I see it. Right? Like that was what was my driver. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. I want to, I have a little bit of a superpower 
um, or if I have a superpower, one of it is is I'm a, I'm very good at arguing, right? I, I, I oh, I know, almost, I, I know, Sean. <laughs> almost like I almost view it like chess, right? Like I think the thing in a proper argument is to think several moves ahead, right? And then if you can start driving t- someone towards a an indefensible position, and then you sort of can make the kill, right? At that point, um, I, I've always been able to do that. I've my job is. It, it talking it so I've gotten better at it over the years just through through doing things but this is what I realized um I realized when I sort of had the revelation about how toxic it was and how it was um what I was not getting out of it that I thought I was then I realized that I actually when I was doing those arguments I wasn't arguing to inform I was arguing to destroy Mm-hmm. Right. My intention was to destroy the person I was talking to, to put them in a position yeah. to make and them so, look you know, bad. One of the things. Yeah. You know, or feel bad or look silly or whatever. So that's obviously even worse because now I have to start to question my own character because I'm like, wait a second. This isn't even really altruistic. Like, I want this person to see what I see. It's really just about me wanting to tear this person apart. And that's and. and- and I mean, again, and that's human, right? We we do that, and we do that. And and once you're honest, it's like you can't unsee it now. Now that you've seen that, <laughs> part right. of you, and it's good to be able to, to. We have to shed light on the dark places. If not, they stay dark. Um, but yeah, no, it's a really, uh, it's really, really interesting. And I I know the Leonard Cohen quote that I that I you know love about you know the cracks are how the light gets in, yeah, right? Sure. And so, um, I feel like that's what's happened. To, I know that's what happened in your life. I know that's happened to me. You know, I'm somebody who, who um, when I was, you had mentioned that I had done some TEDx talks. I did two, and one of them was a very light, fun one about lying called, you know, I, I call it aspirational truth-telling, right? Saying what you wish was true and then using those lies as your guide to who you want to be. Um, and the other one was about my own personal story with depression. And it took me many, many, many years to reveal publicly that I had that history. Um, and I knew, I knew. I mean, I, I was hospitalized uh, after my first year of grad school. Um, I was becoming a psychologist. And, you know, I've come to really think about it, and I've heard it been, you know, termed being a wounded healer, this idea mm-hmm. of, you know, the cracks, that's how the light got in, in my own life. I know that that, um, you know, I've never wanted to do anything else, but I did take a break. I don't know if you knew this, Sean, but I took a break after I finished my my doctorate. I needed a break. And so since I'd been in school since I was four, um, I sold <laughs> furniture. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, for about six months. And I was like, oh, no, I felt like so evil because I was like using my powers to like sell, you know, (laughs) and I was like, no, 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 I'd rather people lay on the couch and not be selling couches. It was a bit much. I was like, I need a break. So that was about six months. And I went back and finished, you know, did my postdoctoral training and everything. But this idea of, you know, um, that things, you know, we things get cracked open. And I think right now there's a lot of cracking open for people because people are feeling really vulnerable. But that's how the light's getting in, you know, um, for many of us. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things I've, I, I've told people about just engaging in the mental health process, especially seeing someone, right, if you feel like that's something you need to do. Um, and, and where it, this touches back on what we were talking about, about even shifting to virtual, I, as I've mentioned to you, like there, I, I do think there is a certain amount of, real energy that comes with being in the same room with someone. I don't want to devalue that, right? Like, I think there are positives to it. 
Um, however, you know, one of the things, especially with the person that I see and have seen, um, is the, the ability to have, which I don't think a lot of people think about it this way, but the ability to have a completely candid conversation with someone that is in your life, but is not in your life. Right. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Right. So they're in your life, right? You have a relationship with that person, but they are not a friend. You don't have to worry about it getting to another person. It's completely secure. There is so much medicine in just dumping, being able to unload, even sometimes if you say things that you, that maybe would not even be socially acceptable, right. To say in groups that are just a raw, we all have raw feelings that we're not proud of, or we have raw feelings that are rough. Like, so I, I don't use uh, an example, but just, you know, like, like, I, I, but like, uh, this guy really pissed me off and I want to kick him down a flight of stairs. Right. Well, yeah. I would never do that, but people have those kinds of thoughts, but you can't say that. Like if you said that in a party, people would look at you like, are you a psychopath? Like why would, but it's real, right? Like people have these very raw feelings that you can't share. Well, the thing is that, you know, we don't control our thoughts or feelings. We learn to control our attention and focus, right? So we don't, we have all kinds of thoughts that aren't ours. We have all kinds of feelings that, I mean, we don't make our thoughts and feelings, you know, they're just there, they exist, right? And then we can choose to respond or not. Um, but yeah, no, it's been very interesting. So I, when I started uh, working on my, um, on the book that I'm working on now, I decided to go to therapy. So I hadn't been in therapy pretty much. I mean, I did a little bit when I was in grad school, right? Kind of supposed to, but, and, <laughs> and here I am. Oh my God, Sean, you're going to love this. So here I am this like, and you know, sh I use the word shrink. I'm reclaiming the word. I really like the word. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I spent the first session, like how the hell is this going to help me? What, what is sitting here talking about my feelings going to do? I'm on the couch at the therapist's office right? Like wondering, how is this going to be helpful, you know, um, which was so hysterical, right? Um, but it was, you know, there's something about we all, I feel like we all need to have a witness, have our lives witnessed, you know, and there's certain things that are very powerful. I think that's kind of what you're talking about is like having a witness to you being able to express something, right? Um, so yeah, no, no, it's really, a while ago, uh, your wife and I, your wife did a piece for CNN and interviewed me for it, um, and it was about um, staying connected with others when you travel with work. I don't know if you saw that piece, it was mm -hmm. great, and we were talking about like bringing a photo of that person or actually being somewhere, even if it's just you, and live streaming the experience, having someone, even if you're on your phone, I feel like there's something just powerful about having a witness and um, telling, telling your truth to someone who's not going to judge or anything. Let me tell you, I hadn't been on the receiving end of a shrink in <laughs> many years. It's been really powerful. I actually had my first virtual session with him the other day. Nice. Um, <laughs> well, let me, let me turn the question on you. You asked me since I don't have a good answer. Did, are there things you've realized that you advise that you were not listening, that you were not taking your own advice? So a few things was, you know, making sure you move your body every day. Um, so now I've been doing more of that, just kind of getting the endorphins going, that kind of thing, making sure I go outside. Um, yeah, definitely the exercise thing. Um, one of the, <laughs> the other pieces of advice that I give is has to do with being very, uh, you know, moderating what you consume, what news you consume, how much you consume, what you're consuming, you know, is seeing the body count going up, is that helpful, is that information you're going to do something with, or are you just sort of, is it like porn, <laughs> you know, you're just like, you know, watching, but, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Right. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
hysterical. Yeah, you know, like really, and be, just being very intentional. And the other piece, what I've been doing is because I work in, in healthcare, I'm not in the clinic, but I'm working with the doctors and everything. One thing I've been advising other people in healthcare to do is to, you know, people want to talk to you in your life. Like if, if you're the one, you know, less so for me, but like you're the ER doc or whatever. And I've been telling my friends that are doctors, like tell people you don't want to talk about it. When you're done with work, you're done with work, you know, but those of us in healthcare have everyone in our lives asking yep. like, hey, how's it going? What's going on out there? And so you have the opportunity you know, to set a boundary. But I've been, um, you know, I stopped watching the presidential whatever that thing is, whatever you want to call that thing. Me too. Uh, <laughs> because it was so, it was getting to me. I was like, why am I watching this? It's enraging me. I feel it in my body. Then I'm going to become an asshole to my family because I'm pissed off and irritable. Why am I doing this? I can just get the information. So that's an example of something that I had been saying these things to patients about being very intentional about what they consume, but I hadn't been doing that. So it's, and, uh, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that. So this ties back to what you said earlier about dealing with grief, right? And this idea of you know in conjunction but one other thing that i've learned is that and and that i now apply and i try to share um is that people think of grief and like the stages and management of grief and all that stuff around death right like and when i say death i mean the loss of a person but what i've tried to do is remember that it can be the loss of anything Right. It, it could be the death of a relationship. It could be the death of a circumstance in your life, a condition. The loss of a job is a death or a change. Right. So it's not just about a family member or a loved one died. Grief, the grief process will care, I think, and I'm not, I'm getting in your territory now, but I believe that the grief process will carry, will play, can play itself out in all kinds of deaths, physical or otherwise. But it's interesting what you mentioned earlier because one of the things that I've actually struggled with, the doctor that saved my life, Right. Like, and, and that can happen in a, in a, in a, in a psychological sense with your, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are people that believe their psychologist has, has saved their life, but the doctor that physically saved my life, right? Like not only did she save your life and there's a whole lot of stuff to unpack about the idea that a single human being did something to keep you from dying. Um, and I understand she had a team and there were other, but sort of the driving, the primary force in that. Um, through surgeries and the other stuff. But then the other part of it is um, I saw her every day for months and then every week for months. And now that I've healed and we've moved away from it, I don't see her anymore. And it is, it hurt. Like it's hard, right? It hurts me. Like I, I yearn to have contact with her. Right. And I understand that like, we're not, I shouldn't say we're not going to be friends because we clearly have a relationship. If I needed her for something, I could, but we don't have a social relationship, but it's like separating those two things when you're the person she's cause she, she wasn't just dealing with me. She was dealing with, I'm sure a litany of patients, but for me, she was it right. Like that was the thing. And I've, I've had a really hard time dealing with that. Right. And knowing that she and I aren't engaging like that on a, I'm glad because I'm not sick, sick anymore, but it's hard. It's so interesting because I've had, you know, when I was in private practice, you know, it was always weird for patients, you know, when you walk out and they see somebody else in the waiting room, right? This like, wait, I thought I was the only patient, you know, like it's kind yeah. of a, and um, now that I've been on the end of now that I've been a patient again, like that feeling of being curious, like, wait, what do you mean there's other people? Like the one who walks out before I walk in. Um, 
<laughs> you know, it's kind of a, 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 from that perspective, it is a very intimate relationship, even if she's got 40 patients. I mean, I can't speak for your doctor, but I know for me, even if I'm seeing 40 patients, like each one is really deeply important to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's just an interesting experience. You know, I think sometimes we think of it, um, I, I, but I really appreciate what you're saying, though, Sean, too. It really reminds me to make sure that when I'm with each patient that they know that I'm just really, really fully present and engaged and that it's just them, you know, them and, and me. I will tell you something. <laughs> and one thing with technology that's a problem, I think, is that you can multitask a little more easily. Um, yeah. Oh, can, can you hear me now? See, this is this this is live to tape, folks. So you get all the technical bits too. This is this is actually something with Doctor Hack that was also a thing, and I think was great. And and you know, we we did talk quite a bit while I was sick about other things. And she is an exceptionally compassionate. So I, had, I she was my attending, but there were several doctors that worked with me, right? And and another one was ice cold, right? Very clinical. Like when she came in, it was nuts and bolts, and then she was out the door. Um, Doctor Hack was not like that. And, but the other thing is she's extremely compassionate, right? Like, and she was very, she would talk to me, like she would let me cry. Like it wasn't, she would sit, she would sit down with me for 40 minutes and let, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't a psychiatrist or a psychologist in a sense that she was treating me. Doctors, they know how to, they know how to do that. But she was just listening. But, you know, I think a lot of her colleagues, you know, apparently she was really engaged with her clients emotionally. And I think she caught grief, you know, from her colleagues for that, but that's just how her heart and mind work. And it was so beneficial. Like we're talking about like, so one of the things my hair fell out, right. When I was sick and you, you can't, people can't see this, but I've got long hair now. And I've always had like this fairly phenomenal head of hair. And so it was, um, it was, that was a mentally hard thing to deal with, right? You don't think about something small, but how you physically look. And I lost all this weight and I was struggling with that. And she said, you need to cut your hair. You're going to feel better, right? Right now it's long, but it's falling out. And, you, and she brought in clippers and my, my GI surgeon, one of the best surgeons on the East Coast, cut my hair, right? She was like, you need to feel better and this is going to make you feel better. And, you know, that's, so I think that also leads to why my connection with her, because it wasn't clinical all the time. Um, but for someone in the state I was in, right? It's not like she was doing like gallbladder surgeries, right? Like she's lying, you know, most of the time she's doing surgery. It's, it's to try to keep somebody from dying. Um, that's a, not, I'm not disc like I'm not pushing down what general surgeons do or things or whatever, but obviously most of her cases are much more severe. And for me, that was amazingly helpful. And, but it does lead to, again, this sort of loss of relationship and it's still there. I mean, I still see her now. I see her every six months or a year, um, for follow-ups, but it's weird, man. It's weird to not have her around and like, not want to like, can we just go hang out? Like, can you, can we go? But that's not appropriate. Well, it's interesting. It, it makes you realize why, and it's not, I'm not saying people do it on purpose. It's not conscious, but why a lot of times, you know, you think of people who have maybe go to the doctor more than they need to go. What are they actually going for? A lot of times, you know, they are going for medical stuff. Other times they're going for emotional stuff, but they don't feel comfortable saying that. So they'll say, oh, it's my stomach. It's my head. It's my this. It's my that. And a lot of times they legit have stomach issues and headaches and whatever. But the reason underneath of of it is that they're looking for that connection, that it's not really about getting, you know, it's, it's interesting. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying people are lying, but it's sort of, 
you know, doctors give so much more than they realize, or many of them do. And so that is a reason why that is a, actually an example. People who keep going to the doctor where they don't think they have a mental health issue or that they need mental health support, but they keep going to their doctor for things they don't need to be going to their doctor for. So that, for example, that's an example of the kind of work that I do sometimes too. Um, when do patients want to tell their doctor something, but they haven't told them, um, but they keep going, you know, wanting help because anxiety and depression affect your body too. Like you have 100%. physical symptoms, you know? So here's some, so I thought about the answer to your question about what advice that I give that, that I didn't listen to. Um, and, and this is funny because I think you probably deal with this in your work a lot, I'm guessing, but you can confirm or deny. Um, and I, and here's the thing. I think this is advice that most people give because it's a platitude and they don't think about it or follow it on their own. But do you know how many times in my life I heard before I got sick, people say to me, Hey, you never know, you know, live your life. You never know. Like you might get hit by a bus. You might get swept up by a tornado. You know what I'm saying? You might, I, I heard that a thousand million times, right? Before I got sick and you, and everyone confirms it. You say it and they go, Oh, you're right. You never know. Nobody lives there. I shouldn't say nobody. People generally don't live their lives. Like you'd never know. Right. You say that all day. And now I, I think that there is, and I, and this is the analogy I use now is we have in this country, there are varying degrees of wealth, right? When it comes to money, you have extremely rich people, you have extremely poor people, and you have some people in the middle, um, and there's haves and have nots. But time as a currency is completely democratic, right? I got as many minutes in today as Bill Gates does or Jeff Bezos or a homeless guy on the street corner. We got this much time. Now, can it be cut short at any moment for any of us? And we don't know. It absolutely can. But if I make it through today, I will have 24 hours of time today and so will everybody else. And that currency is the most valuable currency we have because it's finite. You don't know when it's going to stop and you can't get more of it. Right. And that is something now that I try to grab a hold of seriously in a sense that I used to say to people all the time, hey, you want to start that business? You want to start that creative project? You want to re rebuild a relationship? You want to meet someone that's important to you? Go do it. You never know. There was no meaning in that. There was no substance to it. Now it's like, hey, dude, <laughs> you really don't know. I, trust me, I was walking from my TV room to my kitchen and I hit the deck and it was a year, before, it was eight months before I could almost walk again, right? Like, so take advantage of that shit, right? Like realize the currency you have and spend it because if you waste it, you cannot get it back. It's true. It's really powerful. And I feel like, you know, now, nowadays too, now with the social distancing and all of this stuff, I think people can take stock of what are the things I didn't even realize that I cared about? What are the things that really mattered that I didn't realize, you know, taking that trip to Target and meandering around and, you know, you know, I've been talking to, to different, to different people just, you know, right now, anytime you're feeling a lot of loss and pain, maybe it's an opportunity to do some reflecting on what is it that you're missing and what are you going to do about it once you have access to it again. You know, um, it'll be, it's, it's been a, it's, it's just very, very interesting, but you're right. Like we can't listen. It's good for us to be appreciative, right? That 
of our mortality, that time is finite, all of the things you were saying beautifully. But we also can't walk around constantly in a place of awareness of our mortality. It's sure. hard to function that way. Sure. You know, <laughs> you wouldn't cross the street. You wouldn't think about, you know what I mean? Like, we have to always balance. It's like balancing being in the present and yet also setting goals for the future, right? You're holding more than one thing at the same time. Um, but being aware of of um, the preciousness of things. I think you have a certain awareness that other people, you know, if you haven't lived that, had a, kind of a near-death experience, like legit, you know, like you have, multiple. Um, yeah, so I can't pretend to understand I haven't lived that. I'd like to believe that I can at least appreciate the present and um, take pleasure in it. Um, but, yeah, no, but I mean, I... I love what you said, though, about, you know, sort of the democratization of, you know, time to, is a, <laughs> brings democracy. It's so true. It's so true. But we also, like, sometimes we need to, we can't just be so, always so super aware of our mortality. Sure. <laughs> you know, like, I think it would be hard to move through the world that way sometimes. Yeah, that'll drive you nuts, too, because that's the other thing I think that saved me, you know, when I was in treatment for my father's death. Um the fir- and I'm sure this is common, or at least I've heard it is, is when you have like that first sort of crushing loss, you know, relative to death, you f- you start to think about your own mortality. And most people kind of trope through life or, you know, you know, you know skip, skip along and you're not thinking about, oh, I'm going to die one day. Right. Because it can be paralyzing. Right. It can be really. We have these things called boundary experiences where those things, they, they come into our mind. Some, somebody dies that was like close to our age or something like that. So we have this boundary experience, which is the boundary with the realization that we are immortal, you know, um, a kind of general existential thing. But then we get back to world, you know, 9-11 happens. We're all acutely aware of blah, blah, blah. Then things unfold. We get back to walking around unconsciously. You know what I mean? Sort of it's kind of an interesting, we have these boundaries experiences through our life, but yeah, no, it's, it's intense. I mean, whew. yeah. So like when I, that's the thing, when I got, when I woke up right from all the crazy health stuff and was sort of lucid again, which took a while, seven weeks or so before I could remember, I had a seven week sort of blackout where I don't really know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, I, there were certainly times when I was frustrated. I mean, like, cause when I first woke up, I couldn't talk, right. I had a trach in, like I physically couldn't talk, which as you could imagine for someone like me might as well be, you know, death itself right but um but but then i I really did try to live or inherently was always at a grateful like i felt like i was very fortunate to be alive so i almost didn't go through that like why did you know whatever you subscribe to why did god do this to me why did the universe do this to me why did the random dice of the you know cosmic craps table land on a, a seven for me you know whatever you you know think is the if you subscribe reason or, you know, to the chaos or whatever, I I never was angry or mad about why me. It was more about, Oh my gosh, you dodged a serious bullet. Right. So be glad. And, and I, and I, and I, but I think again, my treatment before all that with dad gave me the tools that I needed to, to make it through that without, I can't imagine if that had happened in a vacuum or before I had gone through some sort of, healing process, it probably would have been infinitely worse for me because I had to address a lot of the things that I think are natural to for people to have to come up with after you go through a, a hard yeah. physical physical. Illness. So one of the I think one of the pieces of advice that I've been giving um a lot of 
when people are struggling is um, asking people, inviting people to think about a time in their life that uh, they went through something difficult and what is it that they did? What were the tools, um, you know, what did they think was going to happen when they were in it and how have they come through it? And I don't believe you get over certain pain and losses, but you can get through, right? Um, and so that's one of the biggest pieces of advice uh, that I've been giving is, you know, our memory is very powerful and our mind is powerful. And if you, if you, you know, if you've ever been in a near car accident where you're in the car, and you have a near miss and you know what your body feels like, right? Like your heart is racing, your chest is thumping. Your body doesn't know that it's safe because your brain for a minute thought it wasn't safe, right? And so we can use that sense of imagination and that powerful connection between our thinking and our body um, to our advantage. So bringing up, recalling into your consciousness a time that you lived through something difficult. Maybe it wasn't these circumstances, but, you know, we've all had different life experiences, but there's a finite amount of human emotions. So people often say, well, you don't get it. You haven't lived this. I'm like, yeah, I haven't lived your exact experience. You're right. I can't pretend to understand that, but I know what despair feels like, mm. you know, um, and I know what joy feels like. I didn't experience that. Okay, maybe, you know. Um, but really, you know, I think that kind of to close that out, like I think that you, it's exactly what you were just talking about, which is that the way to get through this is to remember a time you got through something. Mm. And, you know, when we're upset and we're stressed out and we're in that fight or flight reaction, um, we get amnesia. We forget, right? We forget um, that things have been difficult before and then they were also okay, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so that is to me is one of the most powerful tools in your toolbox is to be able to really bring up and remember a time where, and if you never lived anything terrible in your life, think about maybe a time somebody else lived something terrible and you saw them get through it. Because, you know, when we're upset, it, we can't imagine not being upset. Mm -hmm. The way we feel now, and it's sort of what you were saying before, Sean, people who feel immortal can't imagine ever being mortal, you know? Um, and so just remembering that how you think and feel right now is not how it's always going to be. So when things are good, they're not going to always be good, so appreciate it. And when things are bad, they're not going to always be bad, mm -hmm. so keep that in mind as well. You know, things being not, everything is um, impermanent. There's nothing permanent. And that is scary as hell. And it's also very reassuring. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, and I think I, the tendency for everyone is to swing well beyond the reality. So when things are great, I think people tend to assume they're greater than they are. And when they're bad, you feel like they're worse than they are. That's one thing I'm very lucky because I tend to be a, 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 a curve flattener, right? To use a term that is, is a lot more present, I think these days. Because I tend to not let great things, you know, I tend to try to like great things. I try to downplay and really bad things. I try to upplay. Like I try to live close to the middle. And I've always been that way. That was before just because, and I think some of it was sports. And I draw on this talk of the podcast a lot, like being a competitive athlete through college. Um, there's always this idea of like trying to maintain a, a B level because you, you don't, the, if you getting high and low can affect performance. And so you're really focused on, okay, I need to, if things are going great, it's not that great. If things are going bad, it's not that bad. You just got to focus on doing the work and just stay there. Um, 
and let, you know, and let the highs and lows like sort of ride themselves out. But I do have a question for you. And I, I realize this is a probably very difficult question. Um, and there's probably not a, a universal answer, but one of the things I struggle with is, and, and as a byproduct of the stuff that I've gone through is I think now I'm more aware of when I see things in other people where I feel like they are in trouble or I feel like they are, their psyche is, is, I don't know if impaired is the right word, right? But they're, they're going through something mentally, um, whether I feel like they might be depressed or there's pain or there's something and they don't have a clinical outlet. They haven't taken the leap to go and see someone and get help, whether they, again, think that it's weak or think that it doesn't work or think it's silly or, you know, whatever. I struggle sometimes with thinking, A, how do I approach that? And what's a good way to have a conversation with that person to say, hey, I'm concerned. I've done, and I try to frame it this way. I've done something that was really helpful for me. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but I just want to tell you what worked for me, if that makes sense for you. But in your world, like for the people that are listening, it, because you're looking at yourself as one thing, but I see situations where people see their friends struggling and you don't know how to do it. So you leave it alone. And then if that person does hurt themselves or lose their marriage or lose their job, there's some guilt now. It's like, Oh my God, I saw it and I didn't do or say anything because I, I was scared or I felt uncomfortable. So are there some, are there some, is there advice you can give? Like if you, if, if it's not you, like if you recognize it in someone else, how you, what you do, how you approach that. Totally, totally. No, I, I think this is an important thing to bring up because there's some old myths too. Um, of, so in addition to kind of my clinical work, I lead the suicide prevention efforts for Georgia for the organization where I work. Um, so suicide prevention is something that I think a lot about, care deeply about. Um, I know you're talking more broadly than that, but what I'm going to kind of what I'm going to share has to do with suicide prevention because that's sort of the area I've been working in. Um, you know, there's this old myth that if you bring it up to somebody that you're going to somehow plant the idea that to harm themselves oh, like inception or, you know, or whatever it's ridiculous <laughs> um but it's 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 a myth that people have and so it's a, the way that i would do it is exactly what you just did which is you know what you want to do is you want to reflect to the person you've observed you know i've observed a change give them data right it's you're not judging or anything you're just saying i've noticed you know that i used to text you and you would reply and now you're not replying or i noticed that you seem irritable all the time, you know, you kind of eye notice, right? You look at data, what have you observed? And it's neutral information, it's not judging, and expressing concern and saying, you know, I see you, I see you. Um, I think that sometimes it's the greatest relief for someone to realize, and again, I'm, I'm coming from the perspective of working in suicide prevention work, um, where people often are feeling, feel such a sense of relief to be able to finally talk about how they've been feeling. Um, but coming from a place of curiosity, which is a superpower, in my opinion, um, and just saying, I observe this. I'm, you know, I'm wondering how, you know, what's going on. What can I do to be helpful, to be supportive? I think that for you, especially, I don't, you know, listeners may not know what you look like, but you're like a really big, tall guy. How tall are you, Sean? Six four. How tall? I can't hear. Six foot four. Okay, I mean, you're a big guy, and you know, to have a big southern guy who, you know, is a college athlete talk about his experience with therapy. 
and disclose that kind of, you know, vulnerability, I think that's really powerful. And the more, you know, it's funny because <laughs> we can have a conversation another time about this, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think it means a lot when people who aren't the typical people that you picture going and sitting and talking to a therapist disclose their own story. When Michael Phelps came out and talked about he's been suicidal, he, you know, it. I feel like those are game changers. People like Beyonce, I think, has struggled with depression. And, you know, it's so important when celebrities use their power that way. And especially people of color, um, men of color especially, um, when they come out and talk about their own experiences um, with mental health stuff, I think it's really courageous and really powerful and important. And so to me, yeah, that's a way to take the pain that you've experienced, Sean, and transform it, you know, being that alchemist. I always think mm -hmm. of us as being alchemists and we transform our pain into power. And so curiosity is the superpower and um, expressing that to people of, hey, I'm curious, you know, what's going on? You know, I think that, that, that those are game changers. Those are, you, are game changers. Do you subscribe like do you subscribe to like I know a lot of people talk about like the suicide prevention hotline and that kind of stuff or those resources you feel are viable? Absolutely. Oh yeah, totally. So what Absolutely. Since, so since people are listening and if this has hit you in a certain way, the National Suicide Prevention uh, number is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Um confidential if you want to do that, you certainly can um, reach out and be safe. So I'll put that in the notes of the podcast as well. Just, um, no, oh, it's great that, I mean, they, they're an amazing, there's actually been, I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but there's been a movement to have something sort of like a nine one one type of thing. But like, I don't know if it's what number they were saying, like four one one or three one one or seven one one, something to be like a national suicide hotline to just be three digits. So I don't know, uh, when that's going to happen, but my understanding is it's going to happen. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be awesome. Um, I could talk to you for hours and hours. We've done it before. Um, I want to be sensitive to your time. I know you have a lot going on. We're right at an hour, um, which feels like it's been five minutes. Of course. Um, it always is, Sean. <laughs> I'm, I'm very appreciative of your time. I'm even more appreciative of what you do um, for your patients and the people around you. Um, it's yeoman's work you're doing, and um, it's very important. Um, I don't know... I hope that people understand the importance. And again, and I feel like in almost every podcast, this is how too ubiquitous it is. I think I'm now on, this is the 25th episode of this podcast. Um, I feel like in 80% of them, because a lot of it is me reflecting on my own journey and the conversation I'm having, this comes up and I'd make to your point, I never thought about it that way, but I make it a point to always talk about my experience to let people know I've been to therapy, you know, to treatment, how it's impacted me. Um, because you're right. I think r knowing someone that did it and go, Oh, well, and I, maybe people do, but I think, Oh, well that guy's a fairly level dude, right? Like he seems like he's got his stuff together, right? It, you don't have to be all wackadoo, right? To feel like you need help. Um, I always try to bring it up and, and, and I'm and doing it now. I want people to go, if you're listening to this and the analogy, I say every time and I'll say it again, if you and a friend were, were, out walking down the street and they tripped and fell and they broke their arm and the bone was sticking out of their arm, you would immediately put in an ambulance and you would go to the hospital, right? And you would get a splint. They would give you medicine. You would put a cast on it. You would treat it. It would happen instantaneously. When our mind is broken or our heart is broken, 
We do not treat that the same way we treat physical injury. And you should, right? Like you should look at it like you look at other injuries. Uh, and the thing is, and the thing is, you know, and I've written about this before. And when you do break a limb, let's say you break your arm, you say, I have a broken arm. You don't say I am a broken arm. It's just oh, a condition. Excellent. But when you have mental health issues, a lot of times you're like, I'm bipolar, I'm OCD. And it's like, just like that broken arm, right? It's just a broken arm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that piece about uh, that's a lot of where stigma comes from is that being being identified with the with the injury versus being defined by it, you know, um, and I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I think everyone struggles with to like you don't think about identity, but that's also something that just lately that I've been working on or trying to deal with myself psychologically, because I I, and here's the thing. I, I know that like when people see me now, it's been two years now, right? Um, uh, almost three years, right? Since my thing. And, um, still when I talk to people, I don't talk to you very much. The first thing out of their mouth is like, how's your health? How's your whatever. And I understand that's coming from a place of, of compassion, but I do struggle with like, I don't want that to be what is Sean Arnold. Sean Arnold is the guy that got really sick, right? Like, I don't want that to be what defines me. Right. Like I had, there's a, Hey, why don't you ask me about my podcast? Why don't you ask me about my wife? Why don't you ask me about my job? Why do you always lead with that? And I don't say that to them because again, I know it's not malicious, but that to your point, like that, the stigma of identity coming from something that maybe you perceive as not the great, like if people are just like, Oh, Sean's one of the smartest people I know. That's a great identifier. Oh, Sean's the sick guy. That's different. Right. That's a different kind of feeling. And that's a hard thing, right. To sort of like to, to compartmentalize or, or, or deconstruct maybe is a better word. Um, and you know, j j but I have some control there, right? Like you have to remember why people are saying and think about their intention and all that sort of stuff. But you know, to your point, like your own, how, how you're identified, you can't, I think your perception of how you're identified, you can't let that, I feel like necessarily impact your, desire to help yourself or to get better, you know, or to do whatever. That's an important point. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, this has been so fun, Sean. I really appreciate you. You too. You too. Um, let's maybe do this again. I'm sure there'll be other things that, um, again, I've got a hundred notes over here. I didn't get to, um, but we can talk some more, but, um, uh, everybody, thanks. Um, as always, if you have comments, questions, um, you can uh, comment on all the various podcast platforms. My Twitter is at Sean ATL. You can always get me on the tweets. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm here for every one of you, even if I don't know you. So if you, even if you are someone I don't know that has found this thing in some way, um, you know, I'd be happy to help out just about anybody, however they have, however they need it. Um, Thank you so much. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Um, and uh, let's talk again soon, yeah? All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. You guys are the best people in the world. Um, one of these will come out again at some point, um, unless something crazy happens. So um, I'll see you then. And as always, until next time, press on.